0: Welcome back to the Washed Up Journalist Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Legacy Preservation. Since 2006, Legacy has helped families and businesses preserve their most important stories for future generations. Go to legacypreservation.com to learn more. My guest on today's episode is Tom Kerr, an award winning newspaper cartoonist and artist. After leaving the United States after college to see the world, Tom got his start in the news business in Australia, first as a freelancer and then as an everyday newspaper cartoonist. He returned to the U.S. in the 1980s and found a job working at the New York Post. In recent years, Tom has turned his focus to book illustration and commissioned artwork. In 2014, Kerr illustrated the modern compendium of Despicable Jerks, which you can find for sale today on Amazon. And in 2015, he collaborated with John Prescott on The Oracle's Fables, Life Lessons for Children Inspired by Warren Buffett. I hope you enjoy my interview with Tom Kerr. All right, Tom Kerr. Um, Hello, John. How are you, sir? <laughs> I'm good. I'll give you a real easy opener. Uh, do you ever dream in cartoons? Yes. Really? Yeah. What's that like?
1: Yeah. It's it, it, you, you have stuff going through your head um, when you've got, let's say it's a political situation or a storyline or whatever, and... Characters just pop into your head and they start forming. It's all—it's a little bit like almost being a film director, and you see the whole thing coming together, and you are working out poses and angles and light and all that. Yeah, it's—it happens all the time. So you
0: sometimes wake up with an idea that you have to jot down before you forget it. I, I take it. That yeah, yeah. Cool. I used to
1: have a piece of paper by my bed. Um, I haven't recently, but th- what winds up happening too is you lose a lot of sleep because your brain suddenly trains itself to wake up and then you suddenly say, oh, I got about four hours sleep last night. <laughs> yeah, it could be a bad thing too.
0: So so take us back to uh, where you grew up and how you grew up and at what age you developed either a talent or an affinity for art.
1: Um I, I grew up in a, a little town called Franklin Michigan um, and I describe my growing up as a little bit of Andy of Mayberry it was we had a little pond that was not very far which is where we'd go and fish and in the wintertime that's where we played pond hockey and um, it was a suburb of Detroit um, but it was pretty much the fringe of the country so I I grew up being one of those kids that would go out during the day and wait for the dinner bell to come home. Um, it was an ideal time to grow up back then. Um, the The art side, I've drawn my whole life. I just, I think my first memory of drawing was when I was uh, in Maine. So I would have been about three or four years old, um, and. I wanted to draw Bugs Bunny. That was my big thing, was drawing Warner Brothers. And so I figured out how to draw Bugs Bunny. And I I took an old reed and drew it in the sand. And I was so excited about it. And I told my mom and dad they had to come down and see it when we went to the beach the next day. Well, of course, I was not grown up enough to realize that tides do come and go. So <laughs> that was my first editorial rejection.
0: Bugs lasted less than 24 <laughs> That's hours. That's right. <laughs> A preview
1: of things to come in the newspaper. Business. You know, probably the tide was right. It wasn't that good.
0: So let's talk about your parents. Were they, were they, were they artistic people? Were they people of letters, or, or were they? Um, were they, how, did their brains function in any way like yours does?
1: Uh, well, sadly, um, my brain works the way mine does. Fortunately for them, it's not even close. Uh, my mom uh, really helped me. She wanted me to keep drawing. She really encouraged my drawing. Um, so I remember there were times that I'd be drawing while I was watching TV or whatever and she'd come over and help correct a drawing or whatever. So she was really supportive. Um, my grandfather was a very talented oil painter, watercolorist, uh, and a furniture maker. Um, and his sister was also a very talented watercolorist. So I think there's a lot in the gene pool that, that, that came down. And my sisters also are very artistic. Uh, Pam's a great sculptor, although she never decided to sculpt. Uh, one sister is an incredibly talented seamstress, and the other is an interior designer. So all really artistic in their own way.
0: So this will kind of probably lead us to how you got into the news business, but at at what age did you really take this seriously as something you wanted to do for a career? Was it high school, after high school? How old were you when you
1: thought, I could make a living this way? I never thought I could make a living. (laughs) So Fair enough. (laughs) Um, I... Tried in college. That's when I really started to develop the drawing seriously. Um, I, I kind of went to college thinking, no, you can never be an artist. You, you're just not going to make any money that way. And But just enjoy it. So I I, I was art director of the yearbook. and did a lot of illustrating. I did some caricatures and cartoons for the newspaper and that sort of thing. Um, but it was it was like when i left i i left the United States after i graduated to to go to australia for my let's figure things out years. was it
0: like the equivalent of a modern day gap year or something yeah. that was the intent
1: yeah i i' graduated and i have every intention of coming back and doing grad school my my original goal was to to go into the diplomatic corps um and i was pretty burnt out after four years that my undergrad was pretty taxing. Um, so I thought, I'll just go see the world, take a year off, whatever, just take a break. And I went to Australia, and I, I just fell in love with it. And that was when I said, okay, let's go for this. <laughs> how did you,
0: how did you, how did Australia come to pass as opposed to Europe or wherever else? What, what was it about Australia that, that got you on the plane in the first place?
1: I had um, a great aunt, Aunt Edie. And she married Sir Wilfred Kent Hughes. Of course. Of course. (laughs) That was the way they did things in those days. Um, And we'd always heard stories about Uncle Billy and Aunt Edie. And I guess I grew up with this this, uh, dream of going there one day and just exploring this whole culture. I mean, Australia was incredibly exotic. And I thought, oh, let's let's give it a go. I mean, let's take a year off and start there and work your way around the world. And I just fell in love with Australia.
0: And so you're you're fresh out of college, you're 21 or two or whatever. Yeah. Then how long were you there before you found your way into the news business? And how did that come about?
1: Um, part of my era growing up was the Vietnam era. So it was incredibly political. Uh, i really started to to want to do political cartooning at that time as a way of expressing my feelings about what was going on politically, and drawing was the way I did it. Uh, so when I got to Australia, Australia has, and I never realized this, they have an incredibly strong tradition of political cartooning that goes way back, and one of the the most famous cartoonists of World War II, was David Lowe, who was an Australian, um, but he was he was on Hitler's blacklist. Um, uh, he, so, um, but I, I discovered that Lowe was one, um, Lindsay was another one, uh, one that probably a lot of people know as Pat Oliphant. He got his start with the Adelaide Advertiser and then came across the United States, so there was a really strong tradition of cartooning, which I didn't realize, but boy, I was working with some great people.
0: now you were you, you told me a story uh, fairly recently about about President Reagan. We'll get to that, but um, initially then, were you cartooning local political Australian political figures, or did did you have license to cartoon things back here in the states or elsewhere in the world? How, How did that start?
1: When I started, this is before I got a job with a newspaper, I was freelancing. I was a teacher, but after I'd finished teaching for the day, I'd go back in my little room and I'd do cartoons about what was going on, either locally or internationally. And I'd send my cartoons around to newspapers and magazines and um, try to keep it really topical and then maybe throw in two or three that are a little bit more not so time sensitive and uh, literally I would get rejection back in those days they sent them back to you so I'd send a package out to the age and the age rejected it and they'd send it back and I'd send I'll send that onto the bulletin and the bulletin sent it back I'd take it to the Nation Review so I had this constant cycling of cartoons going around to all the major publications Um, and then I, I had a few accepted. I was blown away. I, I got uh, first one was the Nation Review, which is a, a weekly uh, weekly newspaper that just caught everybody up on the major stories. And then I got into the Bulletin, which really blew me away. It was a great gift to get that one. That was the Bulletin was like Australia's version of Time Magazine. So. I thought, okay, you really do have the potential to, to do this. So I kept doing it. I kept drawing and drawing and drawing. And then the story that I opened this with was the
0: the story you told me fairly recently of um, when, when there was an assassination that tipped on President Ronald Reagan. Yeah. And you were asked to, to in some f- form, v- artistically capture that moment, which you hadn't even seen yet. Right. Uh, to, to tell us that story, where you were working, and how that came about. Okay.
1: At, at that time, I was working for The Sun, uh, the Melbourne Sun, uh, and it was owned by the Herald Weekly Times. So the morning paper was The Sun, and the Herald was the afternoon paper. So I got into the office, uh, and the news was all over the as soon as I walked into the office. And um, I was the only one in the art department on either staff, that could actually draw, other than cartoons. So what wound up happening was um, they came to me and said, no photos have come through over the wires, so we're going to press, and we need something other than mugshots of Reagan to try to capture what's going on. So they gave me every wire story that came in, and had, I had every copy boy and copy girl in the building who could run to get reference for me if I needed it.
0: Anything that could help you create a visual, right?
1: I needed, I needed to get pictures of the type of vehicle that was being driven. Um, it helped that I was an American because I knew the Lincoln mm-hmm. pretty well. Um, so the styling was kind of partially in my brain, but I really needed solid reference to... To work with, but I also needed reference of all the, the cabinet, people that were around him. So I needed all those photos, and I needed them like instantly. Um, so they they brought me everything, and then I had to try to recreate the scene, based on what I'd read, um, and it wasn't that far off. I mean, it was. I was really proud of it, um, and then fortunately, right after the audition, photos did come in. So. <laughs>
0: you were not vindicated but your work was confirmed you did right you did him did it justice and then i'm sure at the end of that day you were
1: ready for a i was ready cocktail yeah we had a a a pub across the street called lou's so i I visited lou
0: (laughs) (laughs) drink your sorrows away Uh, although at that point you probably do, do you get a high when you complete something like that maybe especially when you were in the newspaper business and you're on deadline when you get done, do you get a sense of high or, you know, a, a great feeling? Or is it more just kind of a letdown and a relief that your day is finished? Oh, no, no,
1: no. You're, the adrenaline is just totally flowing. But, I, you know, typically my day would start and I'd finish at four thirty, five 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock. Um, by lunchtime, when the audition was done, I, I'd, I felt like I'd worked two days shifts. I mean, I was really exhausted. On the subject
0: of working on a on a daily news deadline, when you began newspaper work, were you already could could you cartoon or draw at a speed that w- was uh, sufficient to get done on deadline, or did you have to accelerate your pace as an artist to to meet your deadlines? How how ready were you for quick turnaround?
1: Um, I, I was really ready. Uh, I, I did something called a pocket cartoon, which was very, very simple line drawings. And uh, the, the shading was non-existent. It was just lines. So I, was, I used to produce five to six pocket cartoons per edition. So I got to be pretty quick.
0: Yeah. What, what's uh, different about, what was different about news in Australia, the news business, than the States? Um, anything, or what's similar, what's different?
1: I think one of the things that I found, part of it was that the the Australian people are really into politics. Um, You know, here we have that expression, don't talk about sex politics or religion. Going to a dinner party in Australia, politics was always on the table. Um, It was never as vehement as it is today, which is... So, I mean, what we did was we really discussed issues and we really discussed politics and it didn't matter whether you were Labour, Liberal, Conservative, Country Party, whatever. Everybody was just interested in the whole thing. Um, I, I think that, that's part of the, the, the biggest difference. Um, I, I never felt... Um, intimidated by what anybody thought of my drawing because I don't, I don't know, I, I guess I don't think there were people running around with guns. <laughs>
0: it, it's like the worlds there weren't quite as um, far apart as we are today in our country where it wasn't as polarizing, I gather. Most people could sit down and talk about it and come to some sort of rational group d- collective decision about the right path forward as opposed to just being at a stalemate, so polarized like we are now. Is that fair?
1: You know, I think one of the things that happened, I remember doing a series of cartoons about this uh, government minister called Paul Landieu, and he was the minister for labor, and he was also the president of a labor union, which is the walking definition of a conflict of interest. <laughs> um, so we did just It was like every day for almost two weeks we were doing cartoons about his unwillingness to step down or make some compromise to get through this whole thing. So what wound up happening was I got into the office having just heard that he had resigned as a minister. And I went, okay, finally, yes. And then I go and sit down, and one of the secretaries came up and said, um, Mr. Landy, on the phone, he wants to talk to you. Oh, boy. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to have a, a new hole put into my body. Um, he asked me for the originals. No kidding! <laughs> he wanted the cartoons. Um, he saw it as a page in his life and it was, was not personal. They were badges of honor. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that, that really surprised me. But, you know, one of the things, too, was it was not unusual for uh, cartoonists and writers and politicians to to share a drink together. Um, they, they all talked about it. They all talked about what was going on and there was a, you know, there was a respect uh, amongst all of them that you didn't tell stories that you picked up at the pub, um, but there was a healthy dialogue that went on, which is different from today. Yeah, that's it's
0: not sound like the world we currently occupy. Yeah. So how did you, um, how long were you in Australia, and then what brought you back to the States?
1: So I was there for 11 years, uh, and then in 1984, uh, my my Australian wife and I, separated than divorced. So uh, I decided it was time to take a break. I'd been away from the United States for years, and I thought, look, just take a break. Uh, it, uh, this is unheard of in today's world, but uh, back then, it, we used to get six weeks annual leave, so paid holiday. So I never took six weeks. I, I was used to being an American deal where I'd take two weeks in the get course back, of Get year. back to work, yeah. So, But they allowed you to bank your time. So I had, when, in 1984, I, I'd only used, I had about four months banked vacation. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go back to the States for a while and, and sort things out. And, and uh, So I came back to this country and I said, "Okay, I'm. I'm going to stay home. I'm going to be here and rebuild."
0: And then your first news job in the U.S. was where? The
1: New York Post. The train wreck. <laughs> yeah.
0: Tell me about how you you got the, how you got that job and what did you love about it? What did you hate about it? Well,
1: well, there's not much to love about the New York Post. It was a train wreck from beginning to end. It was just it was it was an out of control train. Uh, they they had no idea who they were. All they knew was, as a matter of fact, I remember. Um, doing a special section. And I was working really late on a deadline for this deal. And one of the editors came up and he said, you know, the irony is that the the people who buy the post are probably the people who are stealing from the advertisers. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what happened was I, I um, did a big job search. And one of the, my goals was to get into a major... Uh, metropolitan area, so I really love book publishing. So being able to go to New York was just perfect for me, and I was really excited. Um, but the, the New York Post is not a good place to work.
0: It, it just sucked you dry of uh,
1: what you know. What they used to do, which I think is, uh, I did not like it. <laughs> obviously, uh, was they would hire people on spec. So that they they let you, they'll try you out for like a month, and after I think it was six weeks, you're allowed to join the union. And once you're in the union, you're you're safe and set. So they they'd hire you, um, and they could work you, you know, long long hours, which is fine. That didn't bother me, but um, they could really take advantage of you as a person, and and then. At the very end, I had no idea what was going on. Uh, I got called in. And they said, Well, you're, you're out. I said, Why? <laughs> and they said, Well, you haven't done this, this, this and this. And I said, well, Yeah, I kind of have. <laughs> uh, but I discovered that there was a, an editor that kept all my work in, in his desk. He never showed it to anybody. Mm-hmm. So it was, I, I haven't got a lot of nice You were things. happy to get, get on and get out of there. Yeah, so I, I became a, a quick devotee of the Alpo meal plan, and I suddenly became a full-time freelance uh, in New York City, which actually turned out to be really good. Uh, I I really, uh, I was able to cobble together a living from nothing in New York, and that, I'm pretty proud of that. Did you, aside from the
0: post experience, did you love living in New York? Was it? You know, uh, New York is an
1: amazing city. It's I used to describe it as like a bad marriage. (laughs) Like when the marriage was good, it was amazing. Uh, There was so much to see and so much to do, and the very best of everything was right there. And I love that part of it. But it also can be a really mean city. It can be really harsh. And if things are not going well, nah, not so much. So...
0: But the freelance thing, and, and these were jobs, uh, I imagine, you, did you do a little bit of book work then? What, how did you cobble together a living as a freelancer in New York? What, were the, what was the nature
1: of that work? I used to um, go out to magazines mainly, uh, magazines, newspapers, um, just to be able to pick up the odd cartoon. I mean, the good news was that if you got paid for the odd cartoon, you got paid very well. Um, so between doing that and just picking up little gigs here and there, um, I was able to, I I thought, oh, the government's going to pay me back. And when I went to see an accountant, they said, no, you're going to owe tax. And I went, wow, that's kind of a surprise. Do do I really? (laughs) So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was all just kind of figuring out what I could do and, knocking on doors but you know the cool thing was that instead of knocking on a small door i was going to mad magazine and the new yorker and good housekeeping and places like that there was and meeting some real rock stars in the editorial staff um
0: you were where you needed to be to have that opportunity oh, that yeah. was the perfect city yeah for those opportunities yeah
1: so that was fun. I mean, that, that's the part that there was no certainty, but uh, talk about adrenaline, <laughs> you know. Uh,
0: back just, back to, to step back from freelancing, back to the to the daily journalism side, and I'm sure it varied paper to paper. But how much editorial direction were you given? Um, I mean, did you have a, you know an editor every day saying, "Here's what I would look to emphasize," or did you kind of have a green light to Observe the world and draw what you what you observed, and make a statement that way.
1: It 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 varied. Um, when I was with the Sun, um, when I did pocket cartoons, they didn't give me that much direction because those cartoons were pretty much directed right at stories. They they actually went with the story instead of being on the editorial page. Okay. Um, although some of the cartoons were very political. I mean, if there's a political story on page one, and they went with it, they they went with it. Um, but when I did the editorial cartoons on the editorial page for the Sun, the way it used to work was I would go in with five to six different ideas for the next day's cartoon um, that were all sketched out, and I would talk, you know, go into the editor and talk to them about. What I thought the stories were, and they'd say yes or no. Um, it became kind of a game after a while. That they usually pick the middle cartoon. So I used to do a really crappy cartoon because it was my first one and one that they I knew they would never publish for the last one. So usually the middle ones were where I wanted to be, and that's where I put them in the pile. Kind of
0: a safe spot for you, and a safe spot for the yeah. paper. You, yeah, <laughs> I suppose that's that probably.
1: So it became kind of a game, but it was, it, you know, it, it was part of it was a negotiation too. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was it was a good relationship.
0: I imagine, too, that required you to be a daily news consumer yourself. You oh, yeah. You had to know what, what's relevant, what's going on, and who the key figures were, correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the good things that we had, and um, this is all pre-internet, but we used to have a bank of all the newspapers. Um, so one of the first things I did when I went in in the morning was to, A, check to make sure the cartoons I'd done were in the right place, um, but B, the other was to to look at what all the newspapers were saying, the main stories were, and also what the other cartoonists were doing, because um, I I never wanted to do a cartoon that had appeared the day before in another paper. I mean, it just it's just doing your homework, um, and it's a real embarrassment if you. <laughs> You know, you'd never accuse anybody of plagiarism, but it's just like, come on.
0: Yeah, been there. We, we saw that one yesterday. Right. New. Yeah, that, you know, you hit on a point there about other cartoonists. Um, as a kid, I'm sure you found influences in art in various places, but as you became a professional, uh, where did you um, look to for, I don't know if inspiration is the word, but professional critique ideas new techniques did you get together with other cartoonists and shoot the breeze and talk about your craft at all um or did you just kind of remain a lone wolf
1: um in australia there was a real fraternity uh cartoonists did get together a fair bit and um between the the herald and the sun there were four or five cartoonists and we all knew each other and and we all got on pretty well. Um, Jeff Hook was the other cartoonist at the Sun, and he was great. Um, he was a great mentor, and um, he was—he always had good stories about working with editorial stuff. I mean, he just—he'd been there, done that, uh, and, and I remember he was like at the top of his game. And I asked him a question once. I said, "So you've kind of..." made it to the top of the mountain. What, what's your goal? And he said, my job is today to be better than I was yesterday and tomorrow to beat that. So he, uh, he had very, very high standards for himself. And, and I've, I've tried to do that. Uh, he was an amazing draftsman. He was just a beautiful. His ability to draw things was uncanny. Um, Still, he could be funny and pointed at the same time, and he was just a gentleman from top to bottom. Uh, and
0: could you, could you pick up some of that just by observing someone who's great at what they did every day? Could you? day? I'm sure you can certainly learn to model your behavior, but could you pick up technique and uh, routine from observing it in another person?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think part of what... Every artist has their own style. But especially when you're younger, you're, you're trying to figure out who you are and what you are, and you you look at other artists' work and, and you try to pick up the things that they do that you really like. And it's, it's amazing how it suddenly becomes part of who you are and your style uh, until suddenly it's yours. Um, you know, I had a lot of influences that I hopefully was able to incorporate into quality work. Um, but yeah, I, I learned from some of the best.
0: Um, I'm going to shift a little bit. We've had conversations in the past about uh, courtroom drawing. You've yeah. told me a little bit about some of that that you did. And I, I noticed the other day, as I was just looking at some of your work on your blog, um, you have a couple paragraphs on there about the intensity of sketching in the courtroom. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about... Um, your experience drawing in the courtroom and what made that so intense and, um, and, and such a high?
1: It's, it's a little bit like the, the assassination attempt. You, you can't sit and draw for hours and hours and hours. You are there to tell a story. Uh, and it's a visual story that you're trying to tell, but you, you're not really just recording what you're seeing. You're trying to tell the reader what the whole experience is, um, mainly by taking the key elements of that story and arranging your, your composition to make that work. So that's, that's the art side of it. The intellectual side is, um, well, actually, the other side of the art is getting the art right. I mean, you, you've got to try to capture what they really look like. Uh, and also try to capture their intensity. Um, yeah, you describe a scene, in, I think it was on your
0: blog, where you were sketching a defendant in a murder trial and the person shot you a, in a very scary glance. Yeah. I imagine your adrenaline shot up. But how did that yeah. impact your work?
1: Uh, I, I really went for it. <laughs> <laughs> I was the last laugh. Uh, yeah, I, it was the Amber Harris trial. Oh, okay. Um, and it was it was a, hor- a horrendous murder. It was just horrible. And the more and more I heard the testimony, um, the more upsetting it was. Um, and this guy was not a he was not a good human being. Um, and I was sitting about as far as you and I are right now, six feet socially distanced, socially distanced, <laughs> just barely. Yeah. Um, and he knew I was drawing him, and he he could feel me. Sp- drawing him and he turned and he gave me this look like if i could get over this fence i'd be on your neck um and i i thought no i'm going for this i just didn't like him he was just a bad person
0: not nothing about him you had a hard time finding
1: the humanity in the person i gather (laughs) i mean there's nothing likable about him oh he was horrendous he was just he was just nasty um and I, you know, what he did to this young girl was just unconscionable. So, he scared the crap out of me. But I just thought, okay, get it together and finish this drawing and don't hold back. Uh, and I didn't. Um, first time I saw Don Klein in the courtroom, he was he was uh, the attorney doing the case. Interesting. Yeah. So, um,
0: your um, your work itself. You you work in watercolor, charcoal, graphite, pastel. What's your favorite medium and why?
1: Um, I don't really have a favorite. Um, I have go-tos. I love watercolor. I've always loved watercolor. And part of it's because I love children's books. I love doing pen and ink and watercolor wash. Um, But... My grandfather was a pretty accomplished watercolorist too, and I guess part of me wanted to be a good watercolorist. And Auntie Peg was an amazing watercolorist, um, so that that's a side of me that I've always liked. And part of, and this goes back to being in the newspaper, watercolor dries real fast. Um, you can put a lot of color down very quickly and get stuff done in a quick hurry. Um, using that medium. Oil, not so, not so much. Oil takes a long time to dry. Acrylic's faster, but I, I don't like the texture. Um, so watercolor would be up there. I love pastel. That's the other medium that I just adore. Um, and I, I just love being able to put that rich, rich color on, on paper. It just flies at you. So that's a, that's a fun one for me, too. Um, charcoal you know charcoal is is fun it's like doing pastel without the color
0: (laughs) there are um, so when I speak to someone like you 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 have a a, a unique a talent that most people don't have but yet you've put in a lot of sweat equity over the years to to cultivate that talent if you had to throw percentages on it or, or or render me a figure, what percentage of your uh, ability is natural talent and what percentage of your ability is has been honed through years and years of practice and repetition?
1: Um, I would say it's probably about 40% natural, natural talent um, and 60% is ripping off every artist I possibly, possibly could and trying to incorporate their work Um, and also talking to other artists I mean you you talk to other artists that you can tell how hard they've worked and what craftsmen they really are Um, and it it gives you a a work ethic that you you've got to improve your craft too
0: yeah it's kind of neat when you see someone at the pinnacle of what they do or near that pinnacle and then you compare yourself to them and you're like okay I'm okay, but that person's miles better, and I want to try to get to that point. And then, but you gain a respect for who they are and what they've done because you you see them putting in the hours.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's. Um, I, I met Stephen Brodner a little over a year ago, and boy, what a! He's probably one of the best American political illustrators. Uh, I don't know, I'd, I'd put him top five or ten, at least in my list. Uh, but to listen to him talk about how he cultivates his craft, it really makes you go back and say, you've got work to do, pal. If you want to get to his standard, you've got a lot of work to really do to to get up to his level. But but it's good. I mean, I, I'm i not frightened to, to want to do that work.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, something else. I think I
0: knew this and then forgot it, but I saw it on your website. It's, you got involved drawing McGruff the Crime Dog. Yeah. How did that come <laughs> about? And and talk to me about that experience.
1: So the reason I laugh is that I've had a uh, a way of approaching my business, my freelance business. As a freelancer, yeah. Yeah, and and part of what I do is I'm a magazine junky and uh, so what I would do is flip through magazines and if I see an illustration that I th- think I could do that and I could do it a lot better that's I would approach the magazine and say hi we've never met before here's my work um, sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but
0: you got to, nothing ventured, yeah, nothing right. gained yeah.
1: um, so I was at a Burger King with my daughter and they had a little uh, liner paper with McGruff with mazes and all this sort of stuff. And I looked at the artwork and I went, wow, that's terrible. <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> I Well, I thought I can do a lot better than that. So I approached them uh, and I, I said, you know, I'm, I'm a children's book illustrator and I, I do this professionally. And I love the work you do, and I love the mission you have, and I'd love to work with you. Um, and they said, "Well, we have an artist, and and he works for a very important advertising agency." <laughs> and I I thought, okay, I'm not going to get this. Well, what happened was I sent them sketches of the way I your interpretation my of my the- interpretation of McGraw and how I would draw him, and and I did all these different character studies and and. Uh, I never heard from them. I thought, okay, nothing venture, nothing gain. But about a year later, I got a call from them, from somebody else who had been going through a filing cabinet. And they saw my sketches, and they really liked them. So I drew McGruff for about 10 years. So I did, uh, I did some of the, the animation work for them. But I didn't do the actual animating, but I did the, the extremes. I did uh, comic books for them, I did posters, I did magazine. you name it, I, I did it for them.
0: You you mentioned the scene with you and your daughter in a Burger King, and you also talked about your love of children's books. Yeah. Does being a parent and having a child steer you a little bit toward that part of uh, of um, your career, where you, you, you gravitate towards children's books and you want to draw something that your own
1: kid would... Yeah, it, it certainly got accelerated when when I had a, a child. Um, I've always enjoyed children's books, uh, so the the experience reading Winnie the Pooh, for example, I, I remember rereading that in college and just really enjoying it. Uh, but when and I've always really loved children and working with children, but when I had my own child, and of course you buy every children's book there is known to man. And there's a lot. <laughs> and there's a lot. Um, and you see all these great stories, and then you get inspired, and you, you get really excited. Um, yeah, it it really makes it a lot of fun to, to really dig in and, and want to do something for your own child.
0: Yeah, yeah, like in any parent's dream would probably, whether as a writer or a, or a cartoonist, if you could create something that your kid would appreciate first or more than any other kid in the world that would be the ultimate high as a parent you know Um, which is probably why parents build crazy things and draw crazy things and write crazy things they're trying to make their kid happy and and maybe in a way kind of trying to experience what it's like to be a kid again just for a few moments you know which is which is fun it's
1: a landmark time and it's uh yeah i mean it, it really brings out all the creativity because you know they're going to appreciate it even if it's terrible. <laughs> right. True. Hopefully. They better. That's right.
0: Who's paying the bills? Yeah. Um, uh, so your your present day work, you've done a lot of books in recent years yeah. as you've moved into a freelance career, um, including the modern compendium of Despicable That's Jerks. True, right. You <laughs> collaborated with John Prescott, who, I, who yeah. I've had on the podcast before. Um, talk about, uh, about that book, because I think it's a cool story, how it came about. And then... Uh, the, the, unique, the unique nature of that
1: collaboration and what makes a good collaboration. So the, um, that whole concept grew out of a book that I illustrated about 10 years before that. Um, and it, it was called The North American Field Guide to Assholes, which was really an in-your-face title. And I was really frightened. As a matter of fact, I didn't use my last name I call myself Tom Ferguson cuz I didn't if it became a go-to book I didn't want people the, the A word draws
0: yeah, yeah. my polarize
1: some Oh, people. This is the guy who does children's books. Uh, I didn't want that to <laughs> <laughs> to cloud anyone's right. opinion of you. Yeah. So um, and it 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 uh, was a hard sell. It, you couldn't put a big sign up in the bookstore. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of reasons it didn't do well. It was a really good book. But I I decided it would be fun to resurrect the idea and try to soften the the word. Jerks instead of just Jerks. And so uh, John Prescott and I really have a, a mutual love affair. I love his writing, and he really likes my artwork. So... Um, I approached him about doing this, and boy, there was so many jerks, so little time. I mean, it, <laughs> it was—it uh, was endless a lot supply of, fun. of material. Oh in the man, world. it's just now. John has different standards. His again, his standards for being a jerk are, are very high. <laughs> There's some people I'd say, oh yeah, you're you're going in this book, and he'd say, no, they don't quite reach that level, and. Um, as a matter of fact, one one of his standards that he's broken in the last four years was that he said we we really shouldn't do a president because by definition, you have to be a jerk to be a president. <laughs> and and to a certain extent, I, I really agree with him, but the president administration has just shattered that ceiling. Plenty <laughs> of so, material. That's right. But um, yeah, he's he is just amazing the way he can take an idea, and run with it. And fast. He is so fast. It's scary how fast he is. Um,
0: well, he had a career as a writing for TV. And yeah. so he he knows how to write concise copy and get it done by the 5 o'clock news, you know.
1: But, and still be funny. That's the other thing. It can be so witty and so clever because it, it, it's one thing to, to write tight and write news, but it's all there. There has to be a side of you that has to be really clever to make it funny so
0: so in that book did you um did you sketch jerks and, and then let him write based upon your artwork or did he write the copy and then you sketch the jerk based upon the copy or both 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 there were, just, just let it happen
1: there were some times that i'd see something in the news of something this guy was so egregious this woman was so horrible that they were they were shoe-ins, <laughs> and, instant jerk. And I'd I'd send John a, a pencil because he's he's under no obligation to 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 do it. But um, we we pretty much agree on almost everything. So I'd send him a pencil sketch, and bang, you know, that afternoon. It's in my inbox, and so I'd finish the... And, and you created these, they were blog posts initially yeah. that turned into a book, right? We'd done so many that we had enough for for book plus. So we put it together, and, and we've sold out. I keep getting those royalty checks for 13 cents. <laughs> You can
0: buy a lot of pieces of bubble gum That's for thirteen right. cents. So, and then that turned into a uh, second collaboration with John in twenty fifteen. A year later, when you you two got together and did the Oracle's Fables book, yeah. which was the children's book based on the wisdom of Warren Buffett.
1: Correct? Yeah, and that um, I am super proud of that book. Um, you know, a lot of the cartooning I do, uh, um, I'm serious about it but I I don't take myself very seriously. Uh, And this book, I really wanted it to be the best artwork I've ever done. Um, I I really held myself up to the highest standard I could. Um, But I I was amazed. Once once John got the concept, I said, could you come back with five or six um, little stories and he had them in a week I was thinking of doing it myself I was doing my own writing and it, it it's really hard work it's very very hard work and I gave John the concept and he, he'd written all these little stories in like a week I was blown away so and they were precious they were part of it was they weren't just he Shoved out a bunch of copy. They were precious little stories. Um, so, yeah, we wound up um, getting a, a little presentation that, that we could throw to Warren Buffett. Um, I did a, a mock cover, which turned out to be the cover, um, and, and I illustrated three or four of them um, and sent them to Warren, because and, and, you have to have his blessing. To, to do anything to do anything so he said yeah go for it just tell tell them over at the bookworm you're going to be on the list
0: and you've sold out of that book every year at his annual yeah. meeting correct
1: yeah it's a cool story yeah so now all we need is people to come back yeah. we still have books left over for this year yeah, right <laughs> Yeah, the
0: meeting—the meeting that wasn't. The meeting that wasn't. The, right? that yeah. wasn't. the pandemic yeah. has just affected everything, yeah. including even Warren Buffett yeah. not immune. So, well, Tom, this has been a good conversation. I appreciate you sharing your uh, your, your stories about life in the news business and as a freelancer. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you one final question. Yeah. Um, do you do you love the freedom of the freelance career more than you loved getting up and going to a newspaper every day, or was there? something that's just undeniably romantic about drawing in a newspaper that, that really revved your engine? If you had to pick one, which would it be?
1: I love the energy of a newspaper. There was so much going on. There was so much um, that you got from your colleagues that it was an adrenaline rush. It, um, I, I'm not like other cartoonists, and I don't know how others... I think Jeff Coturba, like to go out and do sketches out in Starbucks, and and he had an office. I love being right in the middle of the newsroom and drawing with. And back in the early days, it was even more energized because there were the teletype machines. I mean, it was noisy, and people yelling for copy boys to come over and pick up this and I mean, and and you know typewriters. There were pre-computers. Um, there's a lot of energy. Um, I love the freedom I've got as a freelance being in my own little room, um, and so in terms of being able to craft what I'm doing and and control it, probably have a little bit more control. Um, but I I tell you, there's a there's a vibe hard to beat that newsroom. Yeah. yeah, it's just so exciting, and I you know I think the sad thing is I don't think that reality is ever going to happen again. Um, I I think that. Newsroom, the, the newsroom per se is gone the way of it's now becoming an insurance office. Uh, Sadly. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's you know, the, the clack of computer keys is fingernails on plastic and, and no teletypes and no yelling, no cigarettes, no, it's totally different. They ball took away game. all the fun stuff. No, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just more my, teletype, more cigarettes. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's bizarre when you stop and think about what a, an office was back in those days. What went on?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, the world's changed in in many ways for the better, but yeah, <laughs> but there are certain relics of that era that um, it'd be nice to have back. But but yeah, we've we've moved on.
1: Yeah, and actually, you know, one of the things I will say, we talked about this a little bit before, is I think one of the things that's very sad is that so many. It's almost like cartoonists are becoming a. Uh, an endangered species. And one of the real, real downsides, and this has happened just now in in Melbourne, I I mean in Omaha, that Jeff Katerba lost his job. So who's going to do a cartoon about potholes? Who's going to do a cartoon about the Don Klein controversy and the Black Lives Matter uh, or the, the Leavenworth Cafe, I mean. There's
0: another voice, there's a voice not in the room anymore. And, and, right. and the people that, the people of Pick Your City are, are going to lose out as a result. We're, yeah. all, we're all suffering as a result of losing the person who could tell a story, storytelling again, tell a story through that visual medium. And, and
1: what you've got is a lot of incredibly talented cartoonists, but all they're doing is national issues. So you're you're going to get Trump and Biden and Pelosi and not much beyond that.
0: Yeah, you're missing out on the potholes or the local election or yeah, the, and
1: what and that's what people really care about.
0: Yeah, I yeah. Mean, they
1: obviously care about national politics, but it's it's the noise from down the street right. <laughs> that's driving you really nuts, Man. or the or the traffic light that should be put up at this intersection because there've been too many people injured. That that's what you lose, and, and that's one of the sad things to me that. I wish they could get, get back to that. Yeah. Again, I think that's... It's like we've hit the point of no
0: return at this point. We're, yeah. We, we simply can reminisce about it. So I'll do my little
1: cartoons on Facebook.
0: <laughs> Something you have to look for. So for people that want to find your work, it's cartoons.com, correct?
1: Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. Cartoons.com yeah. and, cartoons. check- and TomKerR.com. Cool. Or Despicable Jerks. For sale on Amazon.
0: (laughs) Well, Tom, thanks again for your time. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate
1: it. It's great talking to you, John. What a treat. Thank you. (laughs)